Hi, this is Michelle. And this is Deanna. And this is Historable. So, Deanna. So, Michelle. Happy 2023. Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners at Historical Podcast. We missed you guys so much. We had, what, three weeks off? I think Four so. weeks? Something like that? Yeah, we definitely uh, took a holiday break, which was nice to refresh, recharge. Now we're ready to rock and roll. <laughs> ready to rock and roll, except for when I was like setting up my equipment, I was like, what goes where? What do I plug in where? What's a microphone? <laughs> it's so quick how I feel like I just lose it all so quickly. But we're back in action and we're ready to take 2023 by storm. Yes, storm we 2023. Are. 2023 storm. 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 Oh. Make it rain. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Let's let's know. go with that. Let's make it rain in 2023. All right. Anyway. We decided to kick off 2023 in just kind of like a fun way, and we are going to continue on with our little mythology series. I'm so excited. I know. We're going to be doing Egyptian mythology today, which has been the most confusing mythology that I've had to research so far, but it is so interesting, and there is so much detail because it's actually considered to be one of the oldest, if not the oldest, mythology I think we'll probably ever talk about. Interesting. I I guess I never really thought about it. I would have assumed, I don't know why, I would have assumed like Roman mythology would have been the oldest, but I know nothing about Egyptian mythology. So looking forward to learning about it because I don't think I know anything. Totally. I think that when we, now I don't remember the dates exactly, but I think when we were talking about like the Romans and the Greeks, we were talking about like 2000 years BC and this, some of these stories date back to like 4000 BC. So she's real old. Oh, wow. All right. Yes. All right. So we are going to kind of structure this episode similar to the other mythology episodes that we've done so far. We'll kind of start off with the foundation and what Greek myth or I'm sorry, Egyptian mythology kind of kind of meant and what it was founded on. We'll talk about some of the key players and then we'll talk about some of the top stories from Egyptian mythology. So let's get into it. Like other mythologies, most of their stories are there to serve a purpose and explain why the world is what it is and how it functions and why. One important theme, too, is this this word called ma'at, which pretty much means harmony and balance. And so a lot of what the Egyptians did was in the spirit of ma'at, whereas when you look at like Greek mythology or Roman mythology, they were kind of looking at it more like to appease the gods. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it had to do with like the afterlife and where they were going to go when they died and all that kind of stuff, where it seems like maybe in Egyptian mythology, that wasn't so much the case. It was more just like how you were living your life on a day-to-day basis. Got it. 
that is definitely sewn into a lot of these stories is that concept of Ma'at. So let's kind of talk about some of the key players that we'll be mainly talking about today. There are close to 2,000 different gods and goddesses in Egyptian mythology. So there is a lot, but we will just be talking about one kind of familial line today, just because I felt like a lot of those stories are the biggest stories, the most popular stories. And then also these gods are kind of known as, they're like the most popular ones. So I figured we'll just start with these today and then maybe touch on other ones on a later date. In the beginning, there was nothing in the world but the one creator of magic and all of that kind of stuff. And that god's name was Heka. Heka was, I guess, the original god but isn't considered to be the creator god. Oh, okay. Heka actually created the creator god whose name was Ra. I don't know why they don't consider Heka to be the creator god and that it's Ra, but that's kind of like a good segue into a big disclaimer I want to make in this episode is that because all of these stories are so old and have been telephoned through centuries, a lot of these stories have a lot of different versions to them. When I was researching... I saw the same story written 20 different ways. (laughs) Makes sense. Yeah. And then there was a lot of uh, interchanging of gods, too, in different stories where they were different gods in in the same story, or it was the same god but referred to by a different name. And a lot of this comes from just the way that stories were told back in the day, mainly due to the region that they were being told in and the time period they were being told in. Okay, so there was Heka, and then Heka creates Ra, who's then known as kind of the creator god. He then goes on to create, you know, the rest of the world. He's also known as the god of the sun, and also the god of the earth, sky, and underworld. So he's kind of attributed to a lot of different aspects of life. Ra's great-grandchildren are actually the ones that we're mostly going to be talking about today, particularly a set of five siblings, and these are named Isis, Osiris, Nephthys, Seth, and Horus. All right. A lot of names to remember. A lot of names, yeah. And we won't really talk about the fifth sibling, Horus. I mean, we'll get into that later. So we'll just mainly focus on the first four. Isis is kind of known as like the goddess of love, healing, fertility. She's also kind of known as like the goddess of the gods as well. Osiris would go on to become the god of the underworld. Nephthys was the goddess of air and sometimes known as like the mistress of the house. And then Seth was the god of desert, storms, disorder, and violence. Oh, wow. He came to play. (laughs) He came to play. (laughs) Another popular god that you might have heard of before is Anubis. I feel like I grew up with a girl whose like cat's name was Anubis or something like that. But uh, he is the god of death and funerals. So those are kind of the top ones that we're going to be discussing today. And I feel like anytime that I searched, like, who are, like, the main gods of Egyptian mythology, these all these names came up pretty frequently. So a lot of the stories revolve around them. Also, a lot of other gods were there from their lineage. So they were their children and grandchildren and stuff like that. So they were kind of top tier. Got it. One of the sources that I put on the website, I think it's... It says it in there. It's like family tree or whatever. And that was really, really helpful for me that it was laid out that way. Because some of these gods just kind of start to be discussed. And you're like, who made you? Where do you come from? You just like appeared into existence. I don't know where you came from. So this tree was very helpful. 
Another thing about these gods and goddesses is that a lot of them were represented in a very animalistic form. And I think if you think back to like school, when you would go over, you know, like Egyptian history and stuff, you would look at hieroglyphics and a lot of them would have like animal heads or something like a bird or Mm -hmm. a cat. Yeah. Super common thing for them to do. So, for example, Anubis, the god of death and funerals, he is always represented with the head of a jekyll. And this is because in Egypt, in like one of the first civilizations, after someone would die, they would leave the body out like in the nothing, like in this like field. And jekylls would come and kind of just do their animal thing. They would scavenge, right? They would pick the bones and do stuff like that. But the Egyptians saw this as the god Anubis coming to perform his duties of death and funerals. So then they started to associate him with jekylls because they saw those animals and said, oh, that's Anubis in jekyll form. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. So you see that a lot with the different gods. And if you look at hieroglyphics and stuff like that, there's a lot of different animals thrown into that as well. So let's get into some of these myths, the juicy bits, the fun bits. Ooh, fun bits. Fun bits. So we're going to start off with the story of creation because I feel like everything just starts from here. And it kind of goes back to Heka and Ra and what that all kind of looked like in its inception. In the beginning, there was nothing. But like this wasteland of this like formless water and chaos. And this was called New or Noon. I think I'll just call it Noon just to make it simple. All the descriptions I saw of this were giving me really big like Witcher and never-ending story vibes. Like the never-ending stories, it's like the nothing is coming. I'm like, that's so ominous to me. Talking about like just this nothingness. I'm like, that's terrifying. That's space for me. I was going to say, it's like space. (laughs) It's like space. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. So in this noon, though, did exist the god of magic, Hekka. So that god was around. And Hekka is kind of described more in detail as like this primordial force. But Hekka was the god of magic and could create things. And so Hekka is the one that created Ra, again, creator of or god of the sun, underworld, earth, sky, all of the above. Ra was also cool because he was derived from Hekka because he could just speak something into existence and it would just be, right? So he was a pretty powerful god. And one day while the, he's just like existing in this noon, this nothingness of vast chaos, I guess, uh, he decided to have two children and again he just was able to like speak this into an existence so i mean he didn't have like a partner or anything i think he just like impregnated himself i guess (laughs) but from that he ended up having two kids shu the god of air and tefnut the goddess of moisture there is also something about them too like I think he, like, spat out Shu, which is why they were the god of air, and then, like, sneezed out Tefna, which is why she was the goddess of moisture. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But obviously, because it seems like Ra is usually described as being a male, he didn't have female parts, and he had to give birth to them somehow. So there we go. One day, just while living it up in the noon... The two siblings decided to venture out and just see if they could find anything else out in the vastness of nothing. And upon doing so, they ended up getting lost. 
Rob became worried because they weren't coming home, and in an attempt to find them, he actually ripped out his one and only eyeball, because by the way, he only had one eyeball, and like (laughs) shot putted it out into the nothingness to go find them. I just keep picturing that character from Monsters, Inc., Mike Wazowski, with the one eye. Like, that's how I'm picturing this god. (laughs) Just, like, one big eye. (laughs) With the accent and everything. Yes, I totally agree. Thankfully, as Ra is a god, he was able to just regenerate himself a new eyeball, so it wasn't, like, a huge loss. But still, losing an eyeball sucks. But the Seeker eyeball was successful because it did find his children and guided them home. Once they came home, he was overjoyed to be reunited with them, and he cried tears of joy, and through those tears created the first human beings, the first mortals on the chaos of Noon. That is how they explain how the mortals first came to be. So now Ron and his children being reunited and their water baby humans are just floating around the noon. This concept to me is really confusing to visualize because I'm like, are they all just like treading water? Like, are the humans drowning? They're humans. They can't. I I have so many questions. (laughs) There's a lot, a lot to process there. But, you know, telephone, Uh, thousands of years. There's probably more to the story. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Eventually, as the years went on, things started to kind of heat up between Ra's children. (laughs) And in no historical shocker, Shu and Tefnut decided to do the nasty together as siblings. So, I mean, anytime we look like really far back, incest is like a huge theme. So it is what it is. They decided to, yep, do the nasty, and through that act, they gave birth to another set of twins named Geb and Nut. Geb became the god of Earth and Nut the goddess of the sky. Like their parents before them, they too ended up falling in love, which is like, it's just Targaryen level. I can't even. (laughs) So Ra, their granddaddy right now at this point, he's their granddaddy grandfather was actually pretty upset about this i don't know why he wasn't upset about his own children but was upset about his grandchildren but i digress in order to stop this like ancestral line from continuing he decides to separate geb and nut from each other he sends nut all the way up into the sky and he pushes geb all the way down to the earth And therefore, they became the god of the earth and the goddess of the sky and forever banned from touching each other ever again. So that's how they kind of described why there is a sky and why there is a ground and they don't touch. Okay. Grandpappy Ra, though, didn't know that by the time he already he separated them, Nut was already pregnant with Geb's children. I don't know, once she gave birth, these, like, children sprinkled down from the sky. (laughs) Yes, I don't really know. But she gave birth to the five children that we're mainly going to be focusing on today. And that's Osiris, Isis, Seth, Nephthys, and the forgotten brother Horus. Got it. Five in one go. Five in one go, yeah. So now they would be, Ra would be their great-grandfather. So that's kind of, like, the lineage. And again, definitely reference that family tree that like I put on the source notes because that was extremely helpful because these names aren't the easiest to remember and so it can get kind of confusing. 
Out of these grandchildren, though, Osiris was definitely considered to be the most strong and capable of the children. So one day, Granddaddy Ra was like, hey, I'm the god of many things, and I can't continue to rule over the world. So while I'm off being a sun god and underworld and all these other different types of gods, I'm going to hand the reins to you, and you're now going to be the ruler of the world in my stead. So Osiris was like, cool. And Ra was like, yeah. I have to go be the, the god of the sun. And his duty was to actually physically carry the sun around the earth every day, which is how they explained why the sun set and why it arose the next day. While the sun was set, it was said that he was in the underworld, taking the sun through the underworld, which is kind of another reason why he was the god of earth, sky, and underworld, because he went to all of those places. So yeah, while he was doing that, Osiris became the leader of the world. Next story I want to talk about is just Osiris's story in general and everything that he went through in his life, going from the ruler of the world to, if you remember, he then becomes the god of the underworld. So we're going to talk about how he kind of transitions from literally earth to hell. All right. <laughs> Osiris is now HBIC, he's ruling everything now, and he even ends up getting married to his sister, Isis, and they kind of rule together. He is really trying to rule in this sense of ma'at to keep everything harmonious and peaceful, and he's really just trying to keep Egypt flourishing. He is even attributed with creating the Nile River. He's said to do this to be able to nourish all the people and provide a giant water source to the, the people of the land. So everything was good and Grandpappy Rod didn't have to worry about anything happening on Earth. But soon, Osiris's brother Seth became jealous of him and all his power and began to conspire against him. He devised a plan to overthrow his brother and take over leadership himself. Part of his plan was to first secretly obtain his brother Osiris's body measurements. With these body measurements, he actually commissions this like ornate decorative chest to be built to fit his brother Osiris's body to the T. Now, once he actually obtained this chest, he announces that he wants to throw a huge banquet for all of his siblings and all the like important people of the land, and everyone was invited. Once there, Seth is like, hey guys, I have like a little game for us to play. Here is this beautiful chest that I had commissioned. Whoever fits perfectly in this chest gets to keep it as a gift, and everyone's like, Hell yeah, I want a free, beautiful chest to keep on my stuff. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that just seems like a very weird, disturbing party game to be like, yes, I would like to participate in that. Throw me in. Like, that feels a little odd to me. Yeah, everyone just, like, put them their body in this, like, random chest that I'm bringing. Like, okay, that sounds really fun. I guess. I guess not. <laughs> so, anyway... Obviously, people are trying it out. No one's fitting. It feels very like, what's the Excalibur? Like, who can pull the sword out of the stone? It feels very much like that. And eventually, his brother Osiris gets in the chest. And not so surprisingly, it fits his body to a T. Once he was in there, Seth, his brother, ran up and shut the lid on the chest and locked his brother Osiris inside. After that, he then took 
his brother inside the chest and threw the whole thing into the Nile River where his brother then drowned. He then comes back to the party and says, I just killed my brother. Har, har, har. I am now the leader of everything. Like, bow down to me. And pretty much, like, seizes control from that moment forward. I feel like that would be a major buzzkill for a party. (laughs) Like, everyone's having a good time. They're playing this weird game where everyone's in a box and then... All of a sudden, he comes back and he's like, ha, ha, murder. I feel like that that's like the music stops and everyone goes home. Very like thumbs down buzzkill. Absolutely. Everyone's like, well, I thought I was going to get a like cool bedazzled chest, but I guess not. Bye. Yeah. Very disappointing. Very disappointing for sure. Back at the banquet after Seth comes back and says like, hey, I killed my brother. Isis, Osiris's wife, and also Seth and Osiris's sister, <laughs> refused to believe that he was dead forever. And so she went looking for his body in the river. And she spent a couple days searching up and down the Nile, looking for this chest to wash to shore. And she ends up finding it and finds her dead brother-husband inside. But again, they're gods. They have the power of reincarnation. And her nephew is Anubis, who again is the god of death and funeral rites. So she knows that like with his help, she will be able to bring back her brother husband back to life. That's good. Yeah. So Seth is now thinking exactly what Isis is thinking. Like, oh, Isis is going to go find his body and bring him back to life. Like, he's already guessing that she's going to do this. So he just starts kind of snooping around, like, looking for anyone that has any information about where Isis is and maybe if she found the body, etc. And Isis, knowing that Seth is, like, looking for her, she hides her brother husband's body in a secret location. And she goes to her sister, Nephthys, and is like, hey, I need you to look after our brother's body while I go, like, collect herbs and stuff like that to use to bring him back to life. Like, I just need some time to collect everything. And Nephthys is like, yeah, no problem. I can definitely do that. But plot twist, Nephthys is actually the wife of Seth. So while Seth is, like, off rampaging, like, looking for Osiris and Isis, He finds his wife and he's like, hey, sister wife, Um, have you heard anything about Isis finding Osiris? Do you know where his body is? And she couldn't lie to her husband, even though she didn't want to. And she ends up telling him exactly where the body is. Pretty much she was like, "Okay, well, I can't let this happen again. Like her find the body. I need to destroy it for good this time. So he ends up cutting up Osiris's body into 42 different pieces and throwing it all over Egypt. That's a lot of pieces. It seems a little extra. (laughs) Some of the stories I said saw 14, I guess. But I feel like 42 makes the most sense. And it's because once that the body parts were discovered to be, like, thrown about, and Nephthys went to her sister Isis and was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I spilled the beans. (laughs) Like, I'm going to help you find all the body parts, though, because I feel bad for, like not being able to cover for you so the two sisters go and try to find all of osiris's body parts and every time they did they marked it with like a special like little shrine or something like that to protect the body part until they found them all and to protect it from seth the legends say that those 42 pieces that were found and the 42 shrines that were put in place represent the 42 provinces of egypt So that's why I think 42 makes a little bit more sense than 14, because I'm like, well, that actually represents something. So, okay. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot more sense. 
Yeah. So now we have all the body parts. They're out finding the body parts. And they're able to find all of them except for one very crucial body part. And can you guess what this body part is? I'm going to go with probably his man bits. Definitely his man bits. They were unable to find the man piece. And legends say that this piece was actually eaten by a fish. I don't know why a fish or what that symbolizes, but that's just what the myths say, that it was eaten by a fish. With the help of Anubis, Iusis and her sister Nephthys, they assemble Osiris back together, I guess, minus that one crucial piece. So once they do that, Anubis is like, hey, we brought you back to life, but I have something really sad to tell you because you're missing your manhood. You're not considered a whole person now. So you have to go to the underworld and live in the underworld. Like, I'm sorry to tell you. Before he had to go, Anubis allowed him to have like one more night up on Earth before he went down below. He spent that night with Isis and they ended up getting pregnant. Now you could say, how did you get pregnant if she didn't have or if he didn't have his like one crucial piece to get her pregnant? And Isis had a solution for that. She actually fashioned like a prosthetic piece in order to make that happen for themselves. That's dedication right there for sure. Absolutely. After their one night, he goes down to the underworld and Osiris actually becomes the ruler of the underworld. And I think that's mainly in part because he was the ruler of the world. So when he got sent to the underworld, they're like, well, you know how to rule stuff. So you can rule the underworld too. There you go. Makes sense. Totally. That last night of love that he had with his sister wife was Isis, though, she ended up getting pregnant by that act. And she knew that with her brother Seth in power, that she needed to protect the baby because that baby could potentially pose a threat to Seth because it's Osiris's heir. And once it grows up, that it can like challenge his right to rule right so she immediately goes into hiding and during that hiding she's just acting like a mortal and she's just kind of roaming around village to village just trying to like live out in secret and raise her child who they name Horus not to be confused with their brother Horus so from now on if I say Horus I'm just going to be talking about Osiris's and Isis's son Horus So anyway, once Horus becomes of age, he does successfully overthrow his uncle Seth and becomes the ruler of the world. Okay, so now I kind of want to deep dive into some of these little pieces of the Osiris story that we have like greater detail on. So the first one I want to talk about is actually the period of time when Isis was in hiding from Seth while she was raising Horus while he was becoming of age. So this is told in a story that's commonly referenced as Isis and the Seven Scorpions. Pretty much Isis is on the run from Seth so that he doesn't know that they that her and Osiris had a child together. And the baby's name is Horus. She is posing as a mortal and just kind of traveling town to town, just basically relying on the kindness of strangers for food and and shelter and all those types of things. Now, in this kind of journey that she goes on, one of the other gods, goddesses, I guess, named Circuit, she is the goddess of venomous creatures. She decides that she wants to help Isis out. So she sends Isis seven of her top most powerful bodyguards to protect her on her journey. 
But because Isis is posing as immortal, she can't just be followed around by seven bodyguards. That's going to look really suspicious. Right. It kind of defeats the purpose of going undercover. Totally. So Circuit, the goddess of venomous creatures, turns her bodyguards into scorpions so that Isis is now being protected by these scorpions. So it's a little bit more um, incognito. Now Isis is just kind of, yeah, traveling town to town and she gets to this one village and she approaches the home of a very wealthy woman and she knocks on the door and asks for aid. And the wealthy woman just kind of scoffs in her face and is like, you are this like just like gross transient woman like it'll get out of here like I can't be bothered with you whatever and Isis is kind of like annoyed because she's like if you only knew that I am the goddess Isis like you would never be treating me this way but I have to pretend to be immortal for my son's sake so okay and she walks away but her seven little Scorpio, Scorpion little bodyguards weren't having it and they decided that they needed to exact their revenge on Isis's behalf against this woman. So what they do is six of the scorpions transfer their venom to one of the scorpions, kind of making him like a mega scorpion mm-hmm. with like just a ton of venom, like super powerful, whatever. So this mega scorpion, like, I don't know, slithers, crawls into this wealthy woman's home and actually stings her eldest son and heir. And the wealthy woman is distraught. She's like, oh, my God, my son, like, he's dying, blah, blah, blah. And Isis gets wind that this is happening and that it was done from her bodyguard scorpions. So she rushes to the woman's house and barges in and immediately starts using her powers to heal the son and stop the poison. Now, while doing this, because she's using, like, her goddess powers, right, the wealthy woman is like, oh, my God, you're Isis. I'm so sorry. Like, she realizes who she's dealing with. Awkward. (laughs) Totally awkward. And she was like, I'm so sorry for shooing you away and not helping you earlier. Like, what kind of... And you saved my son. You are more than welcome to my home and my fortune and anything. Like, just take it all and whatever. And so this story is kind of told as just like a a, a little... Sorry, it's like easy. It's easily digestible. And I think it's just to kind of prove, like... Never judge a book by its cover. Always help those in need. It's kind of just, I think, able to reinforce that philosophy, right? That's kind of how she was able to survive those. I don't know what age they considered him to become of age, but let's just say like 18 years, right? Like this wealthy woman, her money and her shelter and all that really helped them survive until he became of age. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Now I want to talk about... How Horus, when he became of age, was able to beat his uncle Seth and take over power for himself. Ooh. Yeah, so this is the last story we're going to be talking about, and this one is a wild ride for sure. (laughs) So (laughs) let's get into it. If you're ever going to read a story about this or want to find your own reference points for it, it's really just referred to as, like, the story of Horus and Seth. There's no, like, fun name for it, and that's just how it's commonly referred to. So pretty much Horus becomes of age, and he comes out and is like, Uncle Seth, I challenge thee. Like, you killed my father and banished him to the underworld, and this should be my birthright is being the ruler of the world and you took that from me so I now challenge you and Seth's like cool well the only way to really sell like 
settle this is to complete a set of challenges to really determine who's got the true power. You, you small child, or me, the god of violence, desert, storms, all of the other craziness above. (laughs) So they were like, all right, that, let's get to it. So the two agreed and set off to complete their first competition against each other, which was an underwater breath-holding contest. (laughs) Ugh. That's that sounds like such a dude thing to do. <laughs> totally. It reminds me of that one episode of New Girl when Schmidt's cousin, also called Schmidt, comes over and they're doing these competitions of who's the one true Schmidt. Yes. Oh my gosh, that is a hundred percent true. <laughs> it literally all of this just reminds me of that. So it's really funny. The underwater breath holding contest wasn't your ordinary breath holding contest. Cause remember, these are gods we're talking about here, right? So it's like I don't know, they could probably just like will it that they could breathe forever. So the first step before they started the competition was to turn themselves into hippos. Okay. And as hippopotami, they would then compete in the competition. And so they transformed into hippos. They sat at the bottom of the Nile River and waited to see who would be the victor. Now, of course, this grew a large audience of people watching them as these big giant hippo men trying to see who can breathe the longest. And one of those was Horace's mother, Isis, who's also Seth's sister. So Isis was growing impatient as these two men were underwater longer and longer. She's like, I did not sacrifice 18 years of my life at acting like a, a, a silly mortal just to see like my son not win this competition. She's like, I need to take matters into my own hands. So she then fashions this like harpoon, like this giant like arrow, right? And she shoots it into the water trying to hit Seth, but misses and accidentally hits her son, Horace. And she is oopsies whoopsies for sure so she's horrified so she immediately like retracts the harpoon and heals her son and it was like oh my god i'm so so sorry like i didn't mean to do that i meant to hit seth so after he's all fine he's still underwater everything's good she takes a second shot with the harpoon and this time she does hit seth she hits him but while he's like injured and still underwater he's like crying out to her being like you're my sister and you're now hurting me too like I know that everything, I know I like killed your husband, also our brother, um, but you're my sister and this hurts my feelings pretty much. So he, <laughs> he was like, you can't do this to me. And in that moment, she felt really, really guilty and she did retract the harpoon and decided to heal her brother Seth as well. After Isis saves her brother and ends up repairing his wounds as well, Her son, Horace, ends up getting super pissed. And he completely didn't care if he lost the competition or not. But he surfaced out of the water, charged at his mother, and beheaded her. Because he was like, this is the ultimate betrayal. Wow. And you are now healing my uncle and the person that I'm going against. (laughs) That's uh, that's pretty dark. He really took it to a level that I was not anticipating. (laughs) Totally. And he is not done yet. He ends up taking her head, running up to the top of a mountain, and throwing her head off of the mountain. Whoa, anger issues much? 
yeah, mommy issues for sure. So thankfully, one of the gods that was in attendance to this whole competition was this god named Toth. And Toth was kind of known as like the god of wisdom and invention and science and all these things. But he was known as to be like a really reasonable man. And so a lot of times when the gods were having arguments, he was brought in to mediate. And so he was brought in to kind of judge this competition anyway. And he was able to find Isis's head and put it back on her body for her. Well, that was nice of him. Very nice of him, I thought. Yeah. This next competition we're going to be talking about, I'm just going to put a big trigger warning on it because it has to do with sexual abuse, incest. There's some graphic details in here as well. So just be aware of that. Ahead a couple minutes if you don't want to know. The next thing I want to preface this section with is just kind of talking about how the Egyptians viewed sex and homosexuality, I guess specifically, is that Egyptians really didn't judge on people on their sexual partner preference so whether you were a man who wanted to be with men or women didn't matter whether you were a female that wanted to be with female or men didn't matter no one judged you on that but there was one key component of that is that pretty much whoever was a top in that situation was considered to be the dominant one or it was considered to be more of like a position of power so there was that piece to it Although no one was, like, judging anyone for it, if that makes sense. Well, that's good. I'm glad they were very, uh, very progressive. I love that. Totally. Love that for them. Now, the next kind of pieces that we're going to be talking about are coming from this thing called the Papyrus Chester Beatty, which is, like, an old artifact. Like, it's actually, like, a piece of papyrus that I think right now it's, like, in Ireland somewhere in a museum. But it's an actual, like, written document that tells this story and about how this next part happens specifically so we kind of have like a direct translation that i'll be reading from because i feel like that's the only way that it makes sense that's cool yeah this pretty much picks up right after one of their competitions and goes into this act that seth does to his nephew horus so i'm gonna read it word for word here quote now afterwards at evening time bed was prepared for them and they both laid down So this is talking about Seth and Horus. But during the night, Seth caused his phallus to become stiff and inserted it between Horus's thighs. Then Horus placed his hands between his thighs and received Seth's semen. Horus went to tell his mother Isis, Help me, Isis, my mother, come and see what Seth has done to me. And he opened his hands and let her see Seth's semen. She let out a loud shriek, seized the copper knife, cut off his hands that were equivalent then she fetched some fragrant ointment and applied it to horace's phallus she caused it to become stiff inserted it into a pot and he caused his semen to flow down into it end quote wow that's a, a lot happened in that in that story that's a lot so let's kind of talk about that so seth in the middle of the night was like I know exactly how to beat you and prove that I'm dominant and stronger than you. And that is to take advantage of you pretty much. Mm -hmm. That's what he does to Horus. But Horus, instead of 
receiving his semen ends up catching it instead so that it doesn't enter his body. And so then he finds his mom and was like, oh, my God, because that's proof that, like, that act was done. Right. He was like, oh, my God, I caught it. What do I do with it now? So she takes it and she ends up throwing it in the river. She's like, no, get this. I just cannot be in your body. cannot touch you. Like, it needs to go away. We're going to enact our own little plan to actually flip the tables on him. So then they now collect his semen. And then this next part talks about what she ends up doing with that semen. So I'm going to read again from the papyrus. <laughs> so it says, quote, Isis at morning time went carrying the semen of Horus to the garden of Seth and said to Seth's gardener, what sort of vegetable is it that Seth eats here in your company? So the gardener told her, he doesn't eat any vegetable here in my company except lettuce. And Isis added the semen of Horus onto it. Seth returned according to his daily habit and ate lettuce, which he regularly ate. Thereupon, he became pregnant with the semen of Horus. End quote. Wow. So <laughs> crazy how you can become impregnated by a piece of wet lettuce. Right. Just like that was some salad dressing. Yeah, absolutely. Wet lettuce has a whole new meaning to it now. Very graphic. So take that for what you will. <laughs> Now that they've kind of flipped the tables, it's the next morning, right? So Seth wakes up over his breakfast of wet lettuce, and he's so excited to meet back up with his nephew Horus and then Toth again, who, you know, again, was like a mediator of the gods, because he's going to now prove to everyone else his little plan and say, like, I asserted my dominance over you know my nephew and another thing that he's quoted as saying is quote let me be awarded the office of ruler for as to Horus the one who is standing trial I have performed the labor of a male against him end quote pretty much saying like I asserted my dominance on him like that means that I'm the true victor here they all meet up and you know he says that and whatever and then Horus is like actually uncle that's false and I can prove it and he says, quote, let Seth's semen be summoned that we may see where it answers from and my own be summoned that we may see where it answers from. Pretty much saying like, hey, Toth, summon both of our semen and see where it actually is, because you'll see that I don't actually have any of his semen. Um, and let's see where mine actually is, which is just like, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth. It just sounds so silly. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting turn of events. But let's find that semen. So Toth puts his hands on Horus and summons the seed of Seth. And instead of answering from Horus's body, it answers from the river where Isis had dumped it in his chopped off hands. So next, Toth puts his hands on Seth and summons the semen of Horus. And slowly, this golden disc emerges, emerges from Seth's head. The history says that this disc represents the impregnation of Seth by Horus and is then what he is birthing due to this impregnation, if that makes sense. It's this like golden disc. Wow. Okay. Totally. Uncle Seth is now mortified and being like, oh my God, you you tricked me. Like, how did you do this? Blah, blah. And meanwhile, Toth, the like mediator guy was like, hey, this looks like a cool golden disc. I'm going to wear it as a crown and takes it and wears it as a crown, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Just a little fun fact I saw. <laughs> But anyway, Horus is now deemed like the winner of that little competition. 
Now, the two of them would go back and forth at these competitions over a span of 80 years. So they're fighting for a role for over 80 years. And eventually, remember Ra, Granddaddy Ra, right? He's up in the sky just bringing the sun around. He's like, what are you guys doing for 80 years? Like, I gave my kingdom to Osiris. Now he's in the underworld. I don't know why. And I don't know what's happening here. So then he goes down to the underworld one night while he's bringing the sun down there. He goes to Osiris. He's like, my dude, I left this to you. They're up there fighting for 80 years. Like, you need to decide who wins. Like, we can't have them turning into hippos and eating wet lettuce anymore. We need to figure this out. So he's like, you get to choose the victor. And by no one's surprise, Osiris chooses his son Horus <laughs> to be mm-hmm. the ruler. So Horus it, is deemed the victor and is now the ruler of the the earth. And Seth, I think they like imprisoned him or something and like was in a lifetime of imprisonment or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what that means for a god. Like, does a god have a life span? I don't think so. No, I think so it's just there. Over. Forever, like that sucks. But also, like you killed your brother, and then after you killed him, you chopped up into forty-two pieces. So that's a lot of family <laughs> drama. Lots of family drama, right? From that, I think the most big, the most common story that I saw around was definitely this Osiris story. Like the whole thing, Osiris, and then Osiris and Seth. And Seth and Horus and this whole dynamic. And I think it's because they all kind of derive from like that original five siblings that are like some of the most prominent of Egyptian gods. I think that's why a lot of the main stories you'll find are about them and about their direct descendants. But there are over 2000 different deities in Egyptian mythology. So there are so many stories I could never even put into a hundred episodes. <laughs> I figured that was the easiest way to get our beginning taste into Egyptian mythology. And that's where we could kind of start off because it was like more of a familial line. But that is our first little take on Egyptian mythology. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for pulling that all together. I definitely um, learned a lot today. I'm sure everyone else did as well. Um, and I'm definitely going to go check out your source material on our website, historicalpodcast.com because I need to see this family tree that you were referencing because I'm like, my brain is blown with all of these different names and locations. So I want to, I'm going to definitely look at the tree. So one of my favorite things about, and now I can say it about that family tree is that there are, you know, like there's like the, I forget what it's called, but it's like the little box that where it shows all the indicators, right? So there's the different lines that mean different things. Like they were married, they had a child together. And one of the little like indicators is like, if it's a green line, like they were impregnated by wet lettuce or semen lettuce or something. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's actually that too funny. <laughs> too funny. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, definitely check out that family tree because it's very educational. <laughs> All right, will do. Also, on your homework list, if you aren't following us on social media, check us out. Uh, We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, allhistoricalpodcast.com. If you would like to join our Patreon, and that's a great way to support us, uh, feel free to check out patreon.com slash historicalpodcast. If you want to send us an email, send us an email, please. Uh, Email us at historicalpodcast (laughs) at gmail.com. And... I think that's it. 
So thank you all for your support. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Michelle, once again, for pulling that all together. I'm sure researching thousands and thousands and thousands of your old uh, content was a little challenging, but you did a great job. Learned a lot today. And thank you, listeners. We will, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. So, like, I think I'm going to cool it on salads for a couple weeks. I know. I'm like, I want to go eat, but I'm kind of not hungry. Yeah, I kind of, I feel like wet lettuce is, like, one of my favorite insults, but now it just has a whole new meaning. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see you next week. All right, bye. Bye.